This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. If you caught our last hour, you know we have Frankenstein on the brain with our Sci-Fi Book Club. And what better way to update that monster story, where body parts are stolen from graves, than to discuss one from this century where body parts are being grown in the labs from stem cells, specifically skin. Our next story involves an attempt to grow skin in the laboratory, which is a lot more complicated than you might think. Skin represents a challenge because even though you can't see them, skin has dozens of types of cells. And past attempts to grow skin in the lab have yielded a fairly dumbed-down version. But researchers from Indiana University have made new progress in that direction. They have grown mouse skin complete with dermis, epidermis, and hair follicles. Hmm, maybe a future answer to baldness? Well, here to tell us more is Dr. Carl Kohler, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's a co-author on the new research published this week in Cell Reports. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. Tell us about otolaryngology. What? That's, that's not a field, right? I, <laughs> I tend to associate that with skin cultures. Uh, yeah, yeah, so so otolaryngology is... Uh, you typically think of ear, nose, and throat. Right. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> how'd you get into this? Though? I'm kind of surprised, just like you are, that I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on skin now. Um, so, uh, this work came out of a project where we were trying to actually develop a way of generating the inner ear from stem cells. And uh, what we know about how the inner ear develops is that it actually develops from the same sheet of cells that the skin does. So. Uh, it wasn't very surprising to us that we were able to generate skin as kind of a byproduct of generating inner ear tissue. Uh, however, we were kind of surprised to see both layers of the skin developing, like you mentioned in the intro there. And those cell layers interacted in such a way that allowed hair follicles to develop. It was, it was a bit of a shock to see that in the, in the lab. So you got hairy skin you didn't expect. Yes. <laughs> How many layers does skin have? Uh, so uh, there are two basic layers, the, the epidermis and the dermis, but within each one of those layers, they're stratified. So you see uh, about three to four different cell types within kind of specialized cell types within those, those mm -hmm. layers. So you get, the, you get the hair follicles, which is very important to skin. Which you, Did you expect the hair to come out? Uh, no, no. It was, it was, it was uh, unexpected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, what about sweat glands? Did you get sweat glands on this too? So that is something we haven't seen yet. Um, and it's not that surprising because sweat glands, these are mouse hairs, remember. Mm. Um, and mice only have sweat glands in very specific locations like their uh, feet. Oh, there's a little fact for tonight. Exactly, yeah. Unlike humans, which have sweat glands all over their body. So, so what does this look like? I'm, I'm picturing a thin sheet all stretched out in a Petri dish and... Mm, yeah, not quite. That's that's kind of one of the revelations from this study is that uh, the way we're generating the cells, we're generating the epidermis and the dermis together, and so they develop simultaneously in a three-dimensional environment. So they, they take on the shape of a cyst or a, like a ball of cells, and uh, a unique way it's uh, structured is that the inside of the cyst is actually representative of the outside of the skin, the epidermis, and the outside of the cyst is representative of the dermis. So when the hair follicles develop, the roots are kind of growing outward in all directions, 
kind of like the petals on a flower, and the hair shafts are growing into the inside of the organoids. So you got like a hairy ball facing yes. inwards, a sort of inside yes. out hairy ball. We, yeah, we've tried to avoid that terminology because, <laughs> 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 but uh, that's essentially what we're generating. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't sound very enticing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so what makes skin so complicated? It seems like such a simple thing when you look at it. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's underappreciated in its complexity because it. It is. It does have these two basic layers, but it's also embedded with these appendages, which, in and of themselves, there are uh, there are seven to eight different layers of specialized cells within one hair follicle, and they all have a special uh, function within the developing hair follicle, and the hair follicle goes through a regenerative cycle over time, over our, our lifespan. Mm-hmm. Uh, constantly degenerating and then regenerating itself. And there are resident stem cells within the hair follicles that, that are governing this process. Um, so it, it is very complicated. Yeah. And then you've got to think about how uh, there's interactions between the, the blood vessels and the immune system, and there are a number of nerve endings within the skin that so, up that complexity. So, so what happened? You, you start out trying to generate inner ear tissue, and you mm-hmm. wind up with skin. Yes. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, at first we were seeing the skin generated with the inner ear tissue. And then we tried to kind of create the right environment so that we would just generate the skin tissue. Because that might be more advantageous uh, for doing things like drug screening or Mm. uh, modeling skin disorders. If you can just generate the skin tissue uh, and the complex cells that that interact within the skin. Yeah, yeah. So, so why did you get a more complex skin out of it than other past attempts? Got. That's yeah. That's what we're actively trying to figure out right now. Is we think it has something to do with the way that the cells develop together, versus past attempts where people have tried to take the individual components of the skin and kind of smash them together in a dish. And that approach has never really led to uh, the complexity or the cellular diversity that we see in normal skin and, yeah. and certainly hasn't produced hair follicles in a culture setting. Yeah. You know, last year we heard about uh, the story of a boy who had 80% of his skin on his body replaced. It was, it was grown to an early developmental stage, and then it was grafted to finish developing on his body. If we can do that, what what's the use of skin grown start to finish in the lab? If you know, it might be easier to do it the other way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a valid point. Um, so that was an amazing study, a very very exciting breakthrough. Um, one thing that I could think about that might weave in, we might be able to weave in with our study is that I, I'm not sure if that technique leads to full regeneration of the skin or just kind of. Uh, a, mm. a surface layer of the skin. Mm-hmm. So we might be able to kind of take our approach and come up with uh, a way of incorporating skin appendages like hair follicles and sweat glands. Yeah, yeah, but you have a hairy little ball. It's yeah. not going to work on somebody's <laughs> arm or a leg or something. Can you do something about that? Yeah, yeah. So it, kind of the two main uh, uh, avenues of research that we're trying to attack right now is figuring out how to take use this mouse skin in a dish model as kind of a blueprint or a template for being able to generate 
uh, hairy skin from human stem cells. Mm. And then on top of that, trying to figure out how to kind of go from this cystic formation and form a more normal-looking layer of skin in a dish and in transplantation studies where we're transplanting yeah. the tissue onto a mouse. Well, if you can if you can figure out the human baldness problem, you're going to be a gazillionaire. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure somebody's been thinking about that. <laughs> it's it's been mentioned, but I, I think, <laughs> but I think the 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 main focus right now is trying to figure out and use this to study the developmental biology of the skin and and uh, understand how hair follicles develop yeah. to begin with. Well, yeah, you know, because that's, that's, uh, the, that you bring that up, that's a very interesting p- point, because why do we have hair on some parts of us and we have no hair, like on our palms of our hands and things like that? What, what causes it? What go, is there some sort of clue or cue that it says to the DNA, here's a spot, make hair? Yeah, uh, one thing we know is that um, the, if we look at the genes that are expressed in the dermal cells on different parts of the body, mm-hmm. they seem to have a different signature. And we think mm. that the dermal cells are actually instructing what type of skin you generate. Um, and so an interesting aspect of this study is that since we're kind of slightly tweaking a method for generating inner ear tissue, we are thinking that the skin that's generated is probably similar to the skin that you see on the outer ear or near where the ear develops. Um, and so thinking about future applications, being able to generate site-specific skin might be uh, an interesting thing to look at in the future. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what would be your next thing? If you're going to take this research further and you had a blank check, I'll give you my blank check question. <laughs> what would you need? What would you like to do? Yeah, well, I think I've already mentioned it. We've, we really are trying to figure out how to take human stem cells and generate ah. these skin organoids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to grow skin on somebody's inner ear, uh, hair on y- someone's inner ear, do you? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, that might not be the best application, yeah. but it could be useful for reconstructing somebody's outer ear. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. What do, What do you mean? Yeah. Well, uh, so there are certain congenital uh, disorders that lead to malformation of the outer ear, and so uh, you've probably seen. Um, pictures of the mouse with the human-like ear growing on its back where yes. people have yes, yes. 3, 3D printed a scaffold that looks like the outer ear. Um, but if that's going to become standard practice in the clinic, we're going to have to find ways to not only put cartilage cells on that scaffold, but also skin tissue to cover it. Mm, mm. And how much work, uh, I mean, what do, what do you have to tweak to, to get the full complement, get the sweat glands onto your skin? Mm, yeah, so... So there's actually been uh, some recent research on this showing that uh, when during development, hair follicles and sweat glands kind of start out as the same uh, kind of outgrowth of the epidermis and different signaling mechanisms kind of determine one versus the other. Um, so it might be interesting to take our model and look look at that sort of uh, interaction. Hmm. Very interesting. And in, uh Quite fascinating, Dr. Kohler. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Carl Kohler, assistant professor of otolaryngology and head of neck surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears, looking to uh, artificial intelligence for help with the world's environmental challenges. 
can one, hmm, if you integrate all of the information about the environment together in AI, can one section help the other? Can we, what can we learn about the whole thing? We'll talk about it after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you think environmental science, you probably picture ecologists or biologists, maybe somewhere foresty or in waders taking a water sample. But my next guest thinks the halls of Silicon Valley have a lot to contribute to the effort if they start harnessing artificial intelligence to tackle tough environmental questions. Joining me now is Lucas Joppa. He's chief environment officer at Microsoft in Redmond, Washington. He's commented recently in the journal Nature about the need for an AI for Earth. Welcome to the program, Dr. Joppa. Thanks so much for having me. Well, what do you mean AI for the Earth? Well, really, I'm talking about trying to get global society's uh, level of information and insight into our Earth's natural resources to the same level that we've managed to achieve with our insights into human activities and, and behaviors. So what kinds of things do you think AI can help us accomplish? So, you know, if I were to look into the future, into the a bit more distant future, I'd, I do imagine a, a easily assembled AI digital dashboard for Earth where we're able to really put our finger on the pulse of Earth's natural systems and allow, you know, people like farmers to be able to understand when and where to plant their crops, when to harvest those to maximize their yield, to allow conservation biologists to understand which lands to set aside for protection and which to set aside for wildlife corridors, for water resource managers to be able to understand the infrastructure that they need to be able to build out, and for climate scientists to be able to provide much more spatially and temporally uh, accurate information so that all of society's business sectors mm. are able to respond. So you'd be able to take environmental data from everywhere in the world, whether it's the oceans, it's the land, or whatever, and put it into a giant database that people can share and learn about each other, and maybe what, can ha what has happened in the past might be telling us what's going to happen in the future. That's that's exactly correct. I think there's two things that AI can really help us do. The first is it can really help us extract meaningful information out of the vast amounts of data that we're already collecting about Earth's natural systems. So if you think about you know the rapidly expanding constellation of high-resolution imaging systems, whether that's from drones and aerial platforms or satellites and things like that, to be able to convert that raw aerial imagery that's coming in into actionable information about things things like where our forests, our fields, our waterways actually are. That's one way that it can really help. And then the other way is to actually help us understand what data we're missing and where we need to go and how we need to collect it. And so those two things are really complementary and they're both required to help artificial intelligence algorithms really help humans get a handle mm. on, on what we know and what we're missing about our, our um understanding of our systems. So AI might be able to tell us uh, about a trend, let's say, happening in global warming in the ocean someplace and say, oh, you know, a little red light or something comes on and says, take a look at what's going on here. You know, the coral reefs are dying in this spot. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, coral reefs are a fantastic example because we've seen the the significant deleterious effects of climate change on those ecosystems all over the world. Um, but you know, you can you can bring it back down to even things uh, maybe that people don't think about, but mm. tracking species all around the world. So trying to understand the state of wildlife populations—it's something we know precious little about, but we could. 
make some significant advances there by harnessing, for instance, the power of citizen scientists to take photographs of species that they see and run those by computer algorithms that are able to detect down to the species level and even for some species down to the individual level, you know, right. uh, like... And, and to be able to track and monitor that over time, put that into monitoring frameworks that allow us to understand the population dynamics. Are those going up, down, and what are the potential impacts of human behaviors on those, on those, um, on those populations? Talking with uh, Lucas Joppa, he's Chief Environment Officer at uh, Microsoft in Redmond. Our number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Talking about uh, using AI as using 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 it on Earth. Um, so, what needs to get on board for all this data to get together and to happen? Yeah. So, I look at it as kind of four key sectors need to really lean in and take an AI first approach to thinking about how we solve some of our environmental challenges. The first uh, the first sector is is government governments and and agent government agencies thinking about how we actually put out those data collection systems all around the world to bring that raw data um, back, to be investing in the research programs that go out and help us understand our, our um, environmental systems, and in some cases setting out the, the policy frameworks for requiring the, the collection of that information. My colleagues and I, uh, about a year ago in the journal Science, published a, a policy piece advocating for here in the United States that we put out a a um, an, uh, annual ecosystem assessment hmm. for for our country to be able to understand the the natural resource portfolio that we have at hand. Um, Non-governmental organizations have a huge role to play here, and really by understanding first and foremost the way that the latest and greatest AI advances can help extend the impact of their work, mm-hmm. but also by coming together in consortia to really consolidate the key requirements that the nonprofit community needs to be able to uh, do things more efficiently so that another of the um, two sectors that that I also think need to contribute, both academia and the private sector, really know where to focus their efforts. So the AI uh, and computer science research departments at the world's leading universities and technology companies like Microsoft that are out there building this uh, new AI revolution, they know the problems that are the most important to apply their technologies to. So, so how do you kick it, kick it off, something like this? How do you get it well, started? That's been a question very near and dear to my heart over the past year because at Microsoft we have been um, building and then just very recently launched a five-year, $50 million investment in a new program that I lead called AI for Earth, which really is about mm-hmm. um, dedicating our efforts to deploying our deep investments in AI research and technologies in the four key areas of agriculture, water, biodiversity, and, and climate change. Mm-hmm. I know the Gates Foundation is very involved in, in doing uh, good works, good deeds about uh, disadvantaged areas over overseas and other places. Does this sort of tie in with any of that, the, that, that sort of uh, idea? Um, not not entirely in the sense that, you know, the Gates Foundation and Microsoft are very uh, distinct and separate entities. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, as a, as a 
as, as the Microsoft Corporation, we're really doing this for three reasons. First and foremost, and I think that's important that this is first, it's because we do think that this is the right thing to do. Uh, time and again, the industrial revolutions of the past have produced amazing technologies that have got our society where they are. But over and over again, they've, from an environmental perspective, they've borrowed from the future to pay for the present. We think that this new fourth industrial revolution that's being built on the foundations of exponential advances in, in AI really needs to be the first one that helps pay back some of those debts and helps start to create a more sustainable future. We really do believe that history is going to judge the success of what companies like Microsoft are doing by our ability to apply some of our technologies to, um, to solve some of these challenges. It's also good for business, quite frankly. Um, you know, our employees expect us to do this. Our customers, our partners expect us to do this. And mm -hmm. our investors do as well. And, and then finally, you know, it's the time is right. I mean, the, the applications that I and my colleagues all around the world have been working on kind of in the back rooms of the research uh, universities and research arms of technology companies, the things that we thought were going to take 50 years to produce are now coming out faster and faster. We're starting to ship these applications at a timescale that even those of us who are on the forefront of building them mm -hmm. never saw coming. And so, you know, the time is right. Uh, the the need is acute. We need to solve some of these issues. We're being faced with this challenge that might be unprecedented for human societies, right? We need to somehow mitigate and adapt to changing climates, ensure resilient water supplies, sustainably feed a population rapidly growing to 9 or 10 billion people, all while stemming a catastrophic loss of biodiversity. And we can't do those things separately. We have to do them all at yeah. the same time. We need technology to help. And where do you, what do your stockholders get out of there? Where is, where's the profit in this for Microsoft? Sure. So there's a, a few things. First and foremost, our stockholders get happy employees who um, who get to work on things that they're passionate about. <laughs> that doesn't about. raise and, the price of your stock, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but I will say that by focusing on some of these problems in the environmental space, we're actually forcing our AI systems to cons confront some incredibly hard technology challenges that if we crack, will accrue benefits across our entire technology and customer and partner chain. So one example that I can give you here is, um, and, and an example that I feature in, in the piece in Nature, is high resolution land cover mapping. Mm -hmm. and. What we're trying to do there is quite similar to all of the computer vision techniques that people have been doing to allow you to recognize you know, your family members in Facebook photos or cats in, uh, in um, online videos. But we're trying to, instead of identify a single object in one small photo, we're trying to identify you know, where the forests and the fields are across one entire image database, something like 10 trillion pixels all at one time. That requires a lot of distributed systems engineering, new algorithmic approaches that are also applicable to many other things. So we live in a technology world where everything yeah. is connected, and working on these things uh, will accrue benefits from a technology perspective. It's uh, quite interesting. We're talking with uh, Lucas Joppa, Chief Environment Officer at uh, Microsoft, in case you just joined us. Let's go to the phones. We have our two phone calls. Let's go to Patrick in uh, Syracuse. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? Hi there. Go ahead. Um, well, uh, I, I grew up in the technology world, and I think that virtual reality is great, but it doesn't necessarily mean anybody's going to act on it. 
I think there's a lot of uh, scientists out there today that just endlessly study climate science, uh, global warming, uh, but, you know, we have a government that uh, values the dollar over the science, and it's kind of, I think, where this will go as well. Okay. Thanks for the call. Yeah, so look, I think uh, this. I actually tried to address some of this in um, in the nature piece as well, which is to say, look, we do know what we need to do. We need to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. We need to reduce the destruction and degradation of our forests worldwide. We need to reduce the uh, warming of our oceans. The bigger question, though, is where is how we're going to do that and where we're going to do it. And how are we going to do that most cost effectively? And that's where I'm saying that AI and some of its associated technologies can really help us be more efficient. Hmm. Do, do you think there are any people that can be worrying about uh, privacy issues here, you know, with, with monitoring of resources and their property or other things that they might oh, consider sure. private? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, that's a that's a completely valid point. Everybody wants to talk about that issue. It's it's particularly relevant when you're talking about a topic like AI for Earth or an AI platform for the planet, because at the end of the day, you, you do have to recognize that every bit of land out there is belongs to some individual organization or geopolitical entity. And so, you know, we do have to make sure that all of these systems, when they roll out, they're transparent, uh, ethical, and fair. The, the nice thing here um, is that that's a conversation that extends beyond AI for Earth or, or things like it. It's, a, it's an AI conversation. And the AI community, both the research community and the technology sector, mm -hmm. have been addressing this front on. I mean, Microsoft was one of the founding members of a consortium called the Partnership and AI, which is a lot of the large technology companies coming together to set these standards about algorithms and how they're deployed. Um, one of the things that I call for in this Nature paper is that is for the topic of environmental monitoring to be part and parcel of that mm -hmm. AI conversation. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. In case you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, Lucas Joppa, Chief Environment Officer at uh, Microsoft in Redmond. How, how did you get to be, and in, to go from, I'm going to call you a geek, to a Chief Environment, because <laughs> I certainly am one, to a Chief Environment Officer? Were you, were you always interested in the environment? or? I, I am. And actually, my title is Chief Environmental Scientist, not Chief Environmental oh, Officer. Oh, I'm, I'm and Xing that out on my paper right here. No, no. The, I, the, the reason I correct you is because this is Science Friday, and we're both scientists. And I've, from the very well, one beginning... one of us is. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, you know, from the very beginning, I've always said I don't want a job if it doesn't have the word scientist in the title. And I have been incredibly interested in natural systems from the very beginning. I grew up in extremely rural northern Wisconsin, and I was really interested in the environment and how ecological communities worked. Uh, I studied wildlife ecology for my undergrad at, at the great department at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I spent two years in the Peace Corps. I did my PhD in ecology. But as I went through my academic training, it just became abundantly clear to me Mm -hmm. that asking the questions that I wanted to ask, well, answering the questions that I wanted to ask, was going to require 
computational support. There was no way I was going to be able to ask these questions at the scale that I wanted to without bringing in computers. That led me down a path that brought me into Microsoft's Blue Sky Research Division called Microsoft Research. I spent seven years there. Um, in some ways, incubating the ideas behind AI for Earth, I was leading academic research programs at the intersection of environmental and computer sciences. Right. And then when the time was right, I wrote a memo called AI for Earth, laying out how Microsoft should should build up a program in this space. And here so, we are. So you see how uh, big data, and that's what you're really involved in here, right? How big data can, and studying big data and analyzing big data about everything in the environment can help us better be better stewards of the earth, if I'm, you know, put it that widely spoken. Big data yeah. is, is, is helpful to all of us here. Uh, d most definitely, and particularly the way that we've built our AI algorithms of late, the more data, the better. Um, I mm. would say, though, moving forward, one of the things that AI can really help us do is move from big data to small data. Because once we've trained these systems, we don't have to go out and be collecting data willy-nilly, right? We, hmm. we can, we, the systems can tell us what data needs to be collected and from where to provide maximum information back to the system. And that will reduce this, this data load hmm. that all of us kind of yeah. live under every yeah. day, right? It. Yeah. yeah. That's reductionism. That's great. Well, yep. Good luck to you, and we'll be checking back <laughs> in with you. Thank you so much. Happy, I really appreciate the opportunity. Happy New Year. Lucas Jopp is Chief Environment Scientist at Microsoft in Redmond, Washington. I want to thank him for taking time to be with us today. When we come back, do you hear a ringing sound no one else can hear? Yeah, I do. You've got tinnitus, and new research is opening doors for new treatments. We're going to talk about it when we come back right after this. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. You know, for more than 50 million Americans, there is no such thing as peace and quiet because every moment of silence is accompanied by a persistent ringing in the ears. Do you have it? I certainly have it. Tinnitus. It's a problem that affects people of all ages. I got mine when I was in my 30s when a firecracker experiment went off near my head and and my ear, my ear has been ringing ever since. And there really is no generally accepted cure for the constant buzzing or ringing or humming going on between your ears. For people with severe cases, it can be a huge burden, and most people have to learn to live with it. But now there's a new treatment for tinnitus on the horizon that embraces a new way of thinking about hearing loss. And joining me to discuss it is my guest, Dr. Susan Shore. She's professor of otolaryngology at the Kresge Hearing Research Institute, University of Michigan. Dr. Shore, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you very much, Ira. Can you remind our listeners, how, how does the pathway of regular hearing work? Well, the sound enters the outer ear and the middle ear, and then eventually gets into the inner ear, where there's a bunch of hair cells that transduce that mechanical energy into electrical energy in the neurons that go into the brain. And then we hear. And so what happens with tinnitus? What's going on there when a person has tinnitus? What do we suspect is going on between the nerve fibers and the hair cells in the cochlea? Well, it's actually more complicated than just between the nerve cells and the hair cells in the cochlea. What happens initially for most people who have tinnitus is that the hair cells or the nerve fibers themselves become damaged. 
And that means that they can't connect with the cells in the brain very well. This is called deafferentation. So the cells in the brain, which are the ones that really are generating the tinnitus, make up for that lack of auditory nerve input to their cell bodies, and they draw in inputs from other senses. One of those senses is the somatosensory or touch system. And so when these, uh, these cells get, get draw in the somatosensory input, they sort of go overboard and they draw in too much input. So the cells begin to fire very fast and they begin to synchronize with each other as if there were a sound there, but there isn't a sound there. And so that's what we figured out over the past deca- decade or so, that the cells that are actually responsible for the tinnitus and sending the, this phantom signal to the rest of the brain reside in the first part of the brain that gets input from the ear. It's called the cochlear nucleus. And so what does your treatment do? Well, our treatment harnesses a process that these cells undergo that's called spike timing dependent plasticity. And these cells can change their firing rates long term, like for hours, depending on how they're stimulated. And they have to be stimulated by the ear and also by the somatosensory system. So when there's a certain interval and order between these two forms of stimulation, these cells can increase their firing rate or decrease their firing rate depending on the interval and order between the two stimulations. So we figured out by studying spike timing dependent plasticity in these fusiform cells that if we stimulated these cells with a particular order, an interval between somatosensory stimulation and auditory stimulation, we could depress the firing rate of these neurons, we could desynchronize the circuit, and we could get rid of tinnitus in the guinea pigs that we were recording from. And how do you do that stimulation? Well, to stimulate the auditory nerve, we use sound. But to stimulate the somatosensory nerve, we, in our initial studies, we used deep brain stimulation by putting an electrode right into the, mm. the brainstem stations of the somatosensory system. But later on for our studies that we wanted to become translational, we used an electrode that we just uh, pasted on the skin of the animal, and then later on in the humans. So it's just an electrical pad that sits on either the neck or the face. And how well does it work in people? Well, uh, we had a, an initial trial with 20 people and we, um, we had a very well-controlled double-blinded study where for four weeks people received either a bimodal stimulation, which was the therapy, so the auditory and combined with the somatosensory stimulation. And after four weeks, um, most of these people said that their tinnitus loudness had re- been reduced, and we measured that. And also the way they felt about their tinnitus had gotten better, so they were less bothered mm. by it, they could sleep better, they had less psychological issues with it, et cetera. And then after the four weeks, they had a rest period of four weeks, and then they received the other treatment, which was a sham treatment. And the sham treatment was auditory stimulation alone without the somatosensory stimulation. We predicted that that wouldn't work because in order to induce this long-term plasticity, you have to have the combined auditory somatosensory stimulation. And indeed, it did not work. Hmm. None of the the patients benefited significantly from the auditory alone. Or actually, that's not completely accurate. Four of the 20 benefited slightly from the auditory alone. Mm -hmm. But most of them benefited from the 
bimodal stimulation. Well, you know, we have millions of listeners, and they're all going to want to get in on your study. Yes, I know. We've already see, received 1,400 emails. So uh, what can they do? Are, they, are we just waiting for some FDA approval on a technique that they might be available to them? Well, we're having another trial um, where we want to do more people to, to verify the technique and also to tweak it a little bit mm. um, because for this first trial, <clears throat> we used four weeks of treatment and we saw a cumulative improvement over four weeks. So in the next trial, we want to go to to six weeks and hope that that cumulative increase will make the treatment last for longer so that they don't have to have a refresher um, every day or every week even. It could be that yeah. they have a refresher every month. We, we don't know. These are details that we still have to work out. I would imagine that you would have to craft your treatment to suit every person's individual frequency problems. Would that be correct? Yes, that's what we've done in this uh, first trial, is that the auditory part of the bimodal stimulus consists of the person's actual tinnitus. So we first measure their tinnitus spectrum using an interactive computer program, and then we transpose that into the actual signal that's presented as part of the bimodal stimulus. Hmm, quite interesting. Well, um, I, I, I know from the reaction you've gotten and the reaction you're going to get from after today's program, uh, that though the, those of us... and and I include myself with those. Luckily, I don't suffer from a terrible case of tinnitus, but I know there are people. I want to bring on another guest who's researching ways these damaged nerve fibers are contributing to a different kind of hearing problem. And uh, that's Dr. Charles Lieberman, director of the Eaton Peabody Laboratories at the Mass Eye and Ear. Dr. Lieberman, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ada. I'm really happy to be here. It's quite all right. It's good to have someone get my name wrong for once. <laughs> I get everybody else's name wrong. Um, I, I know you were not involved in this treatment study of tinnitus, but you were part of a group that coined the phrase hidden hearing loss. What is that? Well, uh, it's called hidden hearing loss because uh, what we discovered is that there can be a lot of damage to the inner ear that Susan just talked about that can hide behind a normal audiogram. You said you were exposed to a firecracker and that caused your tinnitus. I don't know what your audiogram looks like, but many times uh, after a firecracker incident like yours, the the audiogram, the standard hearing test that an audiologist might apply to you, might look completely normal. And so it would be uh, mysterious in a way as if my ear is normal, why am I having tinnitus? Why are strange things going on? And basically what we've discovered recently is that uh, even with a normal audiogram, there can actually be amazing amounts of damage to the nerve fibers uh, that take the information from the sensory cells to the brain. Hmm. And that, so that's why it's called hidden hearing loss. And so the idea is that with uh, this kind of nerve damage, you might not have any trouble detecting a sound. That's what the audiogram tests when the audiologist asks you if you can hear the tone. But you might very well have trouble understanding, especially complex signals like speech in a noisy environment. Uh, like trying to understand conversations in a restaurant. And uh, I'm sure, as you know, uh, the older many of us get, yeah. uh, the more problems we have understanding in noisy environments. We can hear that somebody's talking, uh, but we, we have trouble, more and more trouble understanding it. Mm -hmm. what, what about uh, when you have temporary ringing in your ears? You get back from a concert, there's some ringing, but it goes back to normal. Anything we should worry about there? Well, yeah, I think you really should worry about it. In fact, exactly what I tell people uh, is that uh, if you 
expose yourself to sound and afterwards you hear a little ringing in your ears or perhaps you feel like you have cotton in your ears, uh, you probably have a temporary uh, hearing loss that could be measured by an audiologist. It might recover, but what we've shown in animal models is that uh, noise exposures that cause this kind of completely reversible hearing loss as measured by the audiogram can nonetheless cause permanent loss of nerve fibers. And wow. that's that's the hidden hearing loss idea. Again, you think you dodged the bullet, right. your thresholds went back to normal, but perhaps uh, every time that happens, you've lost a few nerve fibers. And as time goes on, uh, that may slowly cause the kinds of deafferentation problems that Susan was referring to that can ultimately uh, trigger problems with tinnitus. Well, you say that uh, that standard ear test that we take for hearing loss does not detect the nerve damage. Is there a machine or a way to detect if we have nerve damage? Well, we and a bunch of other people are working on it. I think the simple answer is uh, yes, probably. Certainly in one person, we could uh, sort of track it longitudinally. Uh, there are electrophysiological tests, which uh, audiologists do, uh, that are kind of like uh, electrocardiograms that measure the summed electrical activity of your uh, nerve fibers in your auditory pathway that are responding to sounds. And uh, we and others have shown that the amplitude of these potentials uh, can go mm. down in people uh, after noise exposure in a way that is consistent with perhaps there being noise damage. Yeah, so it's not that simple little test then we're talking <laughs> it, It's more complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, Dr. Shore, are, are hidden, hidden hearing loss and tinnitus possibly connected, do you think? Well, yes, they're connected in the sense that, that whatever causes a, a decrease in the input into the central nervous system from the cochlea has the potential to cause tinnitus. And in fact, in the, the study that's reported in the first half of this, this paper that we were talking about um, is an animal study in which we induced the tinnitus using noise damage. And we used very carefully controlled noise damage so we could, we could really control the amount of temporary threshold shift that we induced mm -hmm. in the animals. So in this case, we, we designed the noise exposure to give us a temporary threshold shift that is like hidden hearing loss. And, in, and this was enough to induce tinnitus in about half of the animals. The other half of the animals didn't get tinnitus, and that in itself is a very um, interesting phenomenon and, and should be studied in both mm -hmm. animal models and in humans. Why is it that the animals that got the exact same noise exposure and had the exact same synapse loss Nonetheless, half of them got tinnitus and half of them did not get tinnitus. Wow. The yep. difference lies in the brain. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Uh, let, let me ask both of, both of you about uh, nerve damage and, and hear, hearing loss. Uh, there's been recent research about possibly using stem cells to repair the hair, the hair cells. And, and could they be used also not just for hair cells but possibly the nerve cells? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely, and, and there are other therapies that I think are uh, well beyond the science fiction phase. One of the really interesting things about hidden hearing loss is initially uh, the, the damage is just the loss of the connections, mm -hmm. the so-called synapses between the hair cells and the nerve fibers. And uh, at that point in time, if you sort of catch it early, 
we and others have already shown in animal models that we know what uh, molecules to deliver to the inner ear to uh, cause the nerve fibers to send out new connections and to make new functional connections. So uh, we and a number of people are working on uh, possible therapies that, that might be on the horizon to reconnect uh, these disconnected nerve fibers to their hair cell targets. And Dr. Shore, do you, do you think there is a there is a cure possible possibly for tinnitus? Is it is it a curable problem? Um, I think it's probably a preventable problem. Oh. So if you you know if you take care of your hearing like you do your other senses, then I think the best the best therapy would be to avoid getting it in the first place. But I think that there are some promising therapies coming up um, by trying to understand the mechanisms that are underlying the disorder. I don't know that we can say we can cure it, but we can certainly, at least with this treatment that we've developed in, in some groups of people, we can make mm -hmm. it not as bothersome. And, and to remind us what the best way would be to try to prevent getting tinnitus. Well, prevent getting hearing loss. So the same mm -hmm. way that you would do hearing loss prevention by protecting your ears, not going to rock concerts or protecting your ears when you go to them. Yeah, yeah it's pretty clear that the most reliable way in humans uh, to bring tinnitus on is with noise overexposure. There, there are probably a number of other ways, but as in your case, it's a remarkably reliable way. It's the biggest problem for uh, disability and returning vets, and so uh, noise right. damage is key, and avoiding noise, noise damage in many cases is doable. You know, it's the old story about uh, you can't convince anybody until you have it yourself to understand. Yeah, exactly. Once it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> Right. And uh, well, all your teenagers and kids are going to rock concerts or whatever. Thank you very much for taking time. To, it's fascinating. Thank you both, uh, Dr. Susan Shore, Professor of Otolaryngology at uh, Kresge Hearing Research Institute, University of Michigan, and Dr. Charles Liberman, Director of the Eaton Peabody Laboratories at the Mass Eye and Ear. One thing before we go, uh, the new year marks the retirement of two radio icons. Robert Siegel, who I am proud to call a friend and colleague for 40 years, is retiring as the host of All Things Considered today. Robert, it's been a great career. It's been fun working with you, wishing you all the best. Also, Charles Osgood at CBS Radio, retiring after 50 years behind the mic. I hear Charles in my head just about every day, and we'll miss seeing him on the radio. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. If you missed any part of our program, you want to hear it again. Of course, there are podcasts, and you can hear us anytime on your Amazon Echo or Google Home. Every day now is Science Friday because we're on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also email us, sci-fi at sciencefriday.com. And the Sci-Fi Book Club is back in. We're reading Frankenstein, and uh, we're going to talk about it. Later on, as uh, February approaches, go, go to our website at sciencefriday.com, and uh, you can find out how to get your free copy of Frankenstein and a special copy that uh, we're giving away to about 20 people. Have a great weekend. Stay warm. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York.